Now, beloved, this morning we're going to return to our study of 1 John. So you can open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. And while you are doing so, I'm going to uh, lead us in prayer. So please join me in prayer. Our Lord, our God, we come to you as the true and living God. You are the living God. You are the true God. And you are the God who created us. You're the God who who sent his son to be the lamb of God, to be the sacrifice slain in our behalf because of our sins and because of his holiness and justice and his righteousness. Lord, death could not keep a grip on our Savior. And we just celebrate you as the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth for our sins, but also as the risen Lamb of God, the living God, the shepherd of our souls. And Lord God, we just want to come to you wanting to honor you, wanting to glorify you, wanting to worship you, and just ask that you would help us, Lord, to to guard our minds from distractions, things that would take our minds away from hearing from you, from your word. Help us, Lord, to guard against procrastination of doing the things that we know we need to do, the things that your word tells us to do. Just, Lord, ask that you would work powerfully in our lives to to help us to do what is right in the time that you have given us to do it. Lord God, help us this morning to study your word and to better understand your word that we might better know you and know how to live for you. It's the name of Jesus, our shepherd, we pray. Amen. This morning, beloved, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4, looking at verses 1 to 6, and a message entitled, Discernment Required. Discernment Required. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been on a mission to deceive the people, uh, God's creation. And he, and he specifically wants to deceive people about the true nature of God and really the law of God. And to help spread his lies further, Satan has sent out his demonic legions into the world to deceive the nations. The result has been devastating in many ways, but particularly potent in bringing spiritual ruin to the visible church. We've been warned that Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. We know that from 2 Corinthians 11.14. So because he, he masquerades as an angel of light, we shouldn't be surprised that his servants, fellow demons, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. False apostles, false teachers, and false prophets rarely employ a frontal attack. They are masters of deception and love to impersonate true workers of righteousness so that they can lead people into their deception and lies. Jesus warned his disciples about the present and future danger of these workers of deception. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus told his disciples this. He said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And we see another warning in Matthew 24, 11, where Jesus says, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Of this future appearance, Jesus taught 
Further, in, in that chapter, Matthew 24, verses 23 and 25, Matthew 24, verses 23 and 25, he says, if, if, Then if, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or here he is, that is referring to himself, his second return, he said, Do not believe him, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Why is it that we have such trouble listening to the clear teaching of Jesus? Why does the church have such trouble with the clear teaching of Jesus in this regard? He says many will arise, and they're going to be quite effective, because they're going to lead many astray. Keep in mind, these are not false teachers that are leading the pagans astray. The pagans are already lost. Satan doesn't have to do anything with those. His goal is to take those who at least claim some faith in Christ or some outward, outward uh, work and an outward worship of, of the one true God and to deceive them. And he says in that passage something very powerful that many today completely overlook. He says, even if they show, they will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead. He says, if possible, the elect. In other words, if they weren't elect, these signs and wonders would even lead astray some of those. But they're protected by the power of God, which is a different, really a different topic. We'll get at kind of in, a, in an indirect way during the message. But the point of what Jesus is saying is these false teachers are going to come they're going to look authentic. They're going to lead many astray. And some of them are even going to do signs and wonders. It won't just be smoke and mirrors. Right? It'll be some kind of power, but it won't be godly power. Though these false prophets and deceitful workers are difficult to detect, they do have some telltale characteristics, some traits that reveal who they really are. And God, who knows all things, has given us the secret to identify this. It's not really a secret, because it's given, a, given to us in His Word. He has given His people a way to identify a false prophet. And this isn't new. And uh, we see this the first time in Deuteronomy 13. In Deuteronomy 13, and uh, I'm just going to turn there real quick and read that to you. Deuteronomy 13, first five verses of that, tell us this. And this is... Uh, Really, God speaking to his people through Moses. God says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet, even though they came true. You shall not listen to the word of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. And What were they to cling to? But the words of the law were to be written on their heart, not some the words of some dreamer who happens to get something right or show signs and wonders. 
So the, the first test, you could say, in a way, we see of, of discerning whether a, a message of the prophet, it, it was uh, discerning the genuineness of a prophet, was to check the alignment of the message with the scriptures. So, in other words, what, what Moses is saying, what God is telling his people is, that you'll know whether a prophet is genuine or not by whether it aligns with the word of God or not. Even all the way back in Deuteronomy, he was saying that. And yet there is another test that goes along parallel with that. So the first test, you might, might say, is the alignment test. Does, does the message align with revealed scripture? The, the second test we see that he gives in, in Deuteronomy 4, in actually Deuteronomy 18, uh, beginning of verse 15. I'll just read that to you. Deuteronomy 18, beginning at verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen you shall listen to him. Now this is Moses speaking to Israel prophetically of the Messiah, of the prophet yet to come. So it's a really powerful context. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you have asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. And again, in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. This, now he's Moses speaking firsthand of, of God. He's quoting God. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So there's great accountability for the prophet. He's going to come and he's going to speak the words of God. And anyone who doesn't listen to, to his words will be held accountable by the one true and living God. Because he, is, he was genuinely sent as a prophet to him. But verse 20 continues. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously, that is the false prophet, a prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How are we supposed to know that word? Since, after all, the prophets are supposed to know the word. We don't. Well, the Lord gives a sign here. He says, when the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. They were to judge him. So the first test of the prophet was, is it in alignment with the revealed will of God? That is, with the scriptures that they possessed at that time. All right, the Ten Commandments. Specifically, was, was, uh, was the message of the prophet in alignment with the scriptures and with what they had been taught by faithful prophets who had come, the inspired prophets who had come and give genuine messages. The second test was to be this. If the prophet came and gave a prophecy that didn't come true, he was a false prophet. Because if, if it had been a genuine message from God, it would have come true. God doesn't get it wrong. Only false prophets get it wrong. 
So this is the second test that Moses gave, really God gave. In both contexts, the Israelites were called to discern whether the prophet was from God by examining the message of the prophet, either whether it's in alignment with Scripture or did it come true. That was the way they were to know whether or not that prophet was a genuine prophet. Now, coming back to the New Testament, kind of set the context for where we're going this morning, we, we can summarize that Jesus took these two tests and, and put them into one statement, if you will. He says that you will know false prophets. You will know false teachers by their fruit. He says you will know them by their fruit. And he's using the analogy of a tree. Grapevines don't grow from figs, do they? In other words, you know what to expect. You know their, their, their lives. You know their teaching. So the fruit in that, in that illustration it, are the things that they taught and, and how they live their lives. Both of those could be classified as, as a fruit. Now, the Apostle John builds on this theme that he heard Jesus teach, that you will know them by their fruit. And he builds on this theme by providing his readers with a doctrinal litmus test, if you will, that will reveal the true character of any teacher or preacher. John does this. And this is important for us to understand as we look at, at verses uh, week by week and context by context each week that we not remove it from the larger context or forget about that. John provides this litmus test, this doctrinal litmus test, because he sees the task of discerning whether a teacher was from God and a true prophet or a false prophet as a critical life skill for every true believer. Without the consistent practice of discernment, the true believer is vulnerable to attack, specifically vulnerable to attack in the area of his or her assurance of salvation. So that's, that kind of the, gives us, sets us in the context of what John is going to do in these, in these six verses. So with, with that as the background, let me read to you 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us, and he who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of of error. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Now, beloved, I'm going to show you in this passage, John provides us as God's beloved children two timeless tests, which you must employ to discern true, the true spiritual origin of any teacher or preacher of God's word today. Two timeless tests. And what are these tests? We're going to see them drawn out uh, really from a doctrinal perspective, a Christological test. And you're going to see it also in a more practical sense, what I'll call the audiological test. 
the audiological tests. And I'll explain each one of those in, in just a moment. But look at me, if you will, at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 4. He, he begins there, John begins there with the term beloved. And again, it just, it just really is fitting that he, he introduces this section with such a term. He's addressing them as those who are beloved of God and also those that he loves. And he's used this term before. He, he, he enjoys expressing his love and God's love for those he wrote to. And it's especially appropriate given the, the previous discussion about loving uh, the, the brethren, which we looked at in uh, chapter 3. So he specifically is talking to those who received his letter. He's saying, beloved, don't, do not believe every spirit. So John begins with a divine prohibition. You'll see through the section, John loves to put a positive with a negative. He'll state something in a negative fashion, followed up in a positive fashion, or begin with a positive and move to the negative. And here he's beginning with the negative. He's beginning with the prohibition. He's, he's beginning with, with something that we are not to do. Right? And, and what does he do that? In verse four, I mean, verse 1, he says, Do not believe every spirit. And the wording John uses emphasizes every spirit. He's, he's really saying every spirit do not believe. Do not believe. Now what does John mean when he uses the word spirit? That's, that's a key term in this passage that we need to rightly understand. The key to understanding what John means by the use of the word spirit is discovered, is discovered by just carefully reading on in verse 1. And so we're just going to do that again. I'll read it again. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Okay, so you see the same word used again. Do not believe every spirit contrasted with this, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Why, John? Why should we do this? Well, he tells us, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see how he lines that? He's saying, he gives the, the negative command. He says, do not believe every spirit, the, the positive command is test the spirits. And in parallel with those two, the prohibition and the command is this statement, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So it's very clear that, that John is using the word spirit and spirits to refer to a false prophet or many false prophets. So John is talking about false prophets here. What is a false prophet? Well, it, the, the, the word false prophet in the Greek is simply one term. It begins with the, the prefix, which you recognize, pseudo. We still use this in, in, in English language. We brought it right in and use it. It's pseudo-prophet. But it's really it's one word in Greek, not two like in English. Pseudo means to be not genuine, to be spurious, to be a sham. In other words, to be a fake, not the real deal. And this prefix attached to the word prophet means one who claims to be a prophet but is not. Or it could be one who claims to be a prophet of the one true God but is not. Okay? They could be a prophet of some uh, false religion, but they're certainly not a prophet of the one true God. So if we boil it down, you could say that a prophet is someone who claims to speak for God. It's a, it's a, he's a spokesman for God. And originally the term prophet was applied to those who received direct communication from God. It's used biblically that way. And the New Testament was written in an, area, in an era when 
the office of prophet and the gift of prophecy were still in uh, were still active and ongoing. So for John's readers, they would have understood the, the term prophet much more readily than than we do today. It gets distorted today. Uh, beloved, there are no prophets uh, today walking the face of the earth. No true prophets, I should say. There are plenty of false prophets. Okay. But the New Testament was written in an area when the, prophet, the office of prophet and the gift of prophecy were still working. So I want us to understand by how this applies to us. If there are no prophets today, how does this term apply? And it is through the term of teacher. Now through the Apostle Peter, God gives us uh, justification for making the office of prophet, at least in application to be equivalent with that of a teacher or preacher. Second uh, Peter 1-2 tells us this. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people. So he's talking about a kind of a past tense. False prophets rose among the people, and listen, just as there will be false teachers among you. So he switches. He's looking at the past, and he's saying in the past, false prophets have arose. They have and he said, but in the, looking at the future, he kind of pivots and looks towards the future. He doesn't use the word prophet. He says false teachers will be among you. So when we get back to what John is saying, when he's saying, beloved, do not believe every spirit, he's saying, do not believe every false prophet, which we understand, or every prophet, which we understand to be teacher. So do not believe every teacher, but test the teachers to see whether they are from God. It would be one way to translate this, and it's certainly the way that we need to understand it. Why does John use the word spirit or spirits in, in a place he could have easily just said teacher, and, and we could have avoided all of the, like the study and to go figure out what this is and that is? Here is the reason. John is drawing together in a very concise way a, a battlefield, if you will. It's an ideological battlefield. He doesn't just want us to see the teacher, the true teacher and the false teacher. He wants us to see the source. Where is this information coming from? The source of the teaching is the emphasis, really, of this section. The, the teacher, the false teacher, the true teacher and the false teacher, kind of like they're there, but John doesn't draw attention to them. It's like a photograph where the, the lens is out of focus on the teacher and it's, it's zoomed in and it's focused on the source. And you can see the teacher's there, but it's not really in focus. And that, that's what John is doing by the use of the word spirit. He wants us to see the source of the message that is being delivered. So it's really not so much a test of the teacher so much as it is a test of the source. So he says here, the first negative here, the negative view on this, he says, do not believe every spirit or every teacher. In other words, don't be gullible. Don't be so open-minded. We are not called to be open-minded as believers. When you go to bed at night, you close the door and lock it unless you live in just like a really safe community, all right? Or are living in a, a, some fictional land that you think it's that safe, that you leave your door open and unlocked. But 
Usually the cold keeps us from leaving it open, but, or the heat, either way. But the point of it is that there's discernment required in order to protect your family. Discernment is required, spiritually speaking, to protect your life. You must discern what's genuine and what's not. We're, we're not to accept every teacher who claims to be teaching the Bible. That doesn't mean you walk around with such a heavy dose of, of skepticism that you don't believe anything. So don't go to the other side of this. What it's saying is don't, don't be so accepting. Just because someone names the name of Christ doesn't mean they're a faithful teacher of the Word of God. I think you understand that, that not every person who claims to be a follower of Christ is a follower of Christ. We've been studying that and had many lessons on that. But so true, it, uh, it's also true that John is saying is not every teacher of the Word of God is actually a genuine teacher of the Word of God. And, and the word used, the word believe here, means to accept and trust. Don't accept and trust every teacher who claims to be teaching the Bible. You, you need to be what's, what, uh, what was examined by, uh, or what exclaimed by, in, in the book of Acts, as the Bereans. You want to be like the Bereans, who, who when they heard Paul's message, examined the scriptures to see if these things were true. That's who we're, that's the characteristic of the person that we're to be. Not just a broadly accepting, even of a true prophet like the Apostle Paul. And that's really leads us to the second part of this command, the positive part. And that is, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, to test. Now the word test is, has a, is a word that has a metallurgical background. D. Edmund Hebert explains the word test basically means, quote, to put to the test, to examine, like coins being tested for genuineness or full weight, unquote. So we're to test, to test to see whether something is genuine, as if we were testing to see whether a coin was genuine, a genuine coin or a fake coin. What are, we to, what are we to test the spirits for? John says very clearly, whether they are from God. So we're looking at the source. Okay? Remember, John often uses the term, uh, we are from God, or someone is not of God, to talk about the source. And all through the last passage uh, that we looked at, he was looking at or using the analogy of like father, like son. Right? If you're the father of someone, you're going to be like them. That was the analogy. Um, so someone who knows God, who is a true child of God, is going to be like God in, in righteousness and in truth and how they live their lives. So that is what he's saying. So test the spirits. Test them to see whether they are from God. And, he's, and he adds the reason why we need to do this because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So this isn't just something hypothetical. This isn't something that just happened, happened in the past. This is something that is current. It's true today just as much as it was in Jesus' time or Moses' time. There are false teachers who are out there. Some of those false teachers would even claim to, see, claim to be prophets, although I think at this stage you know better to listen to them. But but nonetheless, there still are deceitful teachers who claim to be speaking from God that we need to be on guard against. So the, these teachers are false teachers are out there, and as I mentioned before, they don't come with a don't typically come with a frontal attack. They're going to come and they're going to try to slip in. 
They're trying to get in in a way where you hardly notice them. That's the reason that Paul told the Ephesian elders when he, when he met with them for the last time. He said, even some among your own number will arise to lead us, the people astray out of the church. This is a real and present danger. So we need to understand uh, what we're up against, that we're called to test the spirits. Well, how are we to test the spirits? That's where John leads into the actual tests themselves, which we see beginning in verse 2. So the first test is the Christological test. So to test your teachers or to test the source of the teaching, you must apply the Christological test to your teacher. Christological is just a longer word that means a study of Christ, a biblical study of Christ. You must look at them. And John, John does this in verse 2 in a very succinct way. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Okay? You want to know whether, whether the source is coming from God or not? John says clearly, by this you know the Spirit of God. Here it is. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now John again provides great clarity. He says, by this you know. He puts up a big flag marker for us to see. We can know what the identity of or the source of the one teaching. Because the one teaching is going to reflect just not the Spirit, just not God, but the Spirit of God. Notice he moves from just the, the um, immediate teacher to the ultimate teacher. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate giver of truth. He is the ultimate teacher. And so John quickly goes, goes to that source. By this you know the Spirit, Spirit of God. And, and this really aligns with what we're told about the whole aspect of inspiration. In 2 Peter uh, 2, verse 21, 2 Peter 2, 21, tells us this, that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the Holy Spirit, as the agent of inspiration, gave His Word to men and moved them in such a way not to dictate to them the Word of God, but to move them to write the very words that He wanted them to write. And so... When a, a man is teaching the Word of God and is faithful to those scriptures, those Spirit-given scriptures, the Spirit-inspired scriptures, that teaching, to the extent that it reflects scripture, can be attributed to the Holy Spirit. And that's why John is saying, by this you know the Spirit of God. He's, he's really looking, again, beyond the, the physical human teacher to the source of the teaching. And he says this, every spirit that confesses, and remember the word spirit here is really talking about teacher, but he's looking beyond the teacher to the source. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. It's very succinct confession, but we'll look at each part of that. Notice he says that every spirit, every teacher, this is true universally, it's a timeless truth, it is always true. Every spirit that confesses And most translations here add the word that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. It's actually not very helpful. Even the New American Standard Bible adds that. And I'm not sure why. It's not in the Greek. Every spirit, it should read, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. I think the reason is to smooth out the English. But in smoothing out the English, they have 
change the meaning slightly because John's focus is the person you're confessing and not the doctrine you're confessing. The importance, the, the distinction is minor but very important. When you confess the person, you're expressing allegiance to the person rather than just saying the words of a doctrine. Someone could say the words of a doctrine, but understand when John used the word confession, he doesn't mean that you just reiterate the words, you say them them out loud. It's implying an, an adherence to, an acceptance or an acknowledgement of that, in this case, the person. And this, the term confess is a present active verb. So it's not talking about a one-time confession. This is something that is, that is a pattern of a person's life. So, and again, this isn't just something that you just rattle off with your lips. That's not biblical confession. To confess something biblically is, is, is really you say it with your mouth and you believe it in your heart. Those two things together. So, a spirit or teacher who says that is from God. Now look at what each part of this. The confession is this. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And again, as I mentioned, each phrase of this is important. We've looked at some of these details in the past, but I'll just review them now. The, the name Jesus is the name given to our Messiah, to the second person of the Trinity at his incarnation. The name is significant. It represents his mission. The name itself can be traced to the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. And indeed, we are told that the name he was to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So the the term Jesus represents not only the human aspect of Jesus, but also the aspect of him being our Savior. The term Christ, as I mentioned before, is not his last name. It is a title and it is a, the Greek term that refers to the Hebrew term Messiah. Right? He is the prophet. We read from Deuteronomy 18, that prophet prophesied through Moses is the Messiah. So it's a claim that Jesus is the Messiah prophesied throughout the Old Testament. He has fulfilled all of those uh, testimonies, all of those prophecies. And really Christ ties Jesus to, um, to God himself as a claim to deity, to be the Messiah. So we've looked at in the past, the Jews anticipated that the Messiah would, would be connected with, with God. Right? So the term Jesus Christ is a term in a very succinct way that is claiming his full humanity, but also his full deity. It links him with the Old Testament prophet of Messiah as well as, the, as well as his current ministry when he is here on earth, that of coming to die for our sins. Which ties us to the next thing. He has come. Jesus Christ, the confession is, Jesus Christ has come that he is sent from the Father to the Son. To, he, sent, he sent the Son, uh, sorry, from the Father to earth uh, on a mission to rescue us. And notice he says this, has come in the flesh. And it's important he says in the flesh and not into flesh. Into flesh might suggest something like some of the heretical teachings about Christ, that that the Christ simply came down upon a human man already born. That's heresy. 
the full expression, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, means everything that we looked at when we looked at, at uh, the Gospel of John. Right? That, that Jesus was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This God, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh and was born as a man so that we can say that, that the God, He is the God-man. The second person of the Trinity is 100% man and 100% God. All of this combines into a, a great importance when we talk about His mission. If He were only Jesus but not the Christ the atonement would fail. If he were the Christ, but not fully human, the atonement would fail. The only reason that Christ can atone for our sins is that because he is fully God, he can die in our place. But because he is fully God, his death atones for all of our sins. All of them. And so to jettison any part of this jeopardizes not only... Not only um, who Christ, the teaching about Christ, but it jeopardizes any, any hope of salvation through the atonement that Christ provides. Atonement being his death on our behalf, that he is the propitiation for our sins. So what John is saying is that teachers who make this confession, again, we're not just talking about mouthing the words, but that the teachers who make this confession are from God. These are given by God, these teachers are given by God for the benefit of the church. They are the, the teachers who are given, and if we go reference Ephesians 4, they're the teachers given by Christ to teach and guide his church. So that's kind of the positive side of this Christological test. And then verse 3 gives us the negative side of the Christological test. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, the shortened term, when it says confessing Jesus, he's, he's referring back to the full confession of verse 2, but he's giving it just a little succinct form. It's not just a denial of the humanity part of Jesus. He's saying every spirit that does not confess and that full confession, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is not from God. And again, remember, every spirit means teacher. And confess, confessing Jesus is the shorthand of the full confession in verse 2. Now, both sides of this are important. Not only must a person um, confess Christ, a teacher confess Christ, that shows the identity. But it also shows an identity when someone is not willing to confess this. You don't have to deny Jesus in order to to see the source. It just requires you not confessing that Jesus is, is from God. It just requires you walking away from the apostolic um, truth about Jesus Christ. John explains that, that not only are these false teachers, those who refuse to acknowledge Christ, not only are they not from God, he identifies the source. Look at the source in verse 3. He says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Really, it says, This is of the Antichrist. This is of the Antichrist, which you have heard, is this, which you've heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So it, this exposes that the type of teacher we're talking about isn't someone who just is uh, making a mistake. This isn't just somebody, like, no teacher is perfect. 
I wish uh, that was true even of me. I'm sure there are things that I've taught that I'd look back and reflect upon and said, oh, that wasn't quite right, and I wish I'd have been clear. Um, none of us are absolutely perfect. Only Christ is perfect in his teaching. That, we're not talking about someone who just happens to get something wrong. We're talking about someone who is teaching something that, that the source of that teaching comes from the Antichrist. And ultimately, it's a doctrine of demons that we're told to turn away from. This false teacher is, uh, is not just someone who's making an innocent mistake. Whether they realize it or not, they may have so doled their conscience that they, don't, they no longer recognize it. But whether they recognize it or not, the person's teaching is linked to the Antichrist who is who is linked to the ideology and power of Satan. You say, well, how can something like this happen? Well, I can't explain to you how, but I can give you an illustration. What did Peter say to Jesus when Jesus said he was going to the cross? He said, you know, that, that's, just, that's, that's not a good plan, Jesus. This whole death thing, I don't like it. And what did Jesus say to, to Peter? Get behind me, Peter. Get out of my way, Peter. You're messing up my mission, Peter. No, Jesus went right to the source. He said, get behind me, Satan. Did Peter know that Satan was filling his head with ideas? No, he didn't. He was just thinking unbiblically. There's no evidence that Peter knew at all what was going on at that moment. And, and Satan hadn't possessed uh, Peter or anything like that. So Peter, at this stage, I believe, was a believer in Christ and protected by Jesus himself. But the ideology that Peter embraced was that of Satan himself. And so too, that is the kind of the idea that John is exposing here, that if someone refuses to confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that person is not just a false teacher, but they are of the source of that teaching is the Antichrist. And again, the Antichrist is linked to the ideology and power of Satan himself. So we see here that there's a great spiritual battle going on, and, and John is giving us wisdom to know how to navigate that from the, from the standpoint of a learner. How do, we, how do we navigate that? And really the whole idea of, of using a confessional, some kind of confessional test um, to see whether a teacher is from God or from Satan is something that even Paul does. Paul provides a similar test in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. And this is given in a time when, there, when the gift of prophecy was in full blown, the gift of tongues was, was, was going on and active. How are they supposed to know whether, whether what was being said was true or not? Right? Some, of the, some of the earlier tests come into play. Is it aligned with Scripture? Did it come true? But, but Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 3. He says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. Which tells us that there are people in the church at the time who claim to be speaking from God who are saying that. Which seems ridiculous. But, but that's what the text implies. And, and he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul's, the Apostle Paul is doing something similar in 1 Corinthians 12.3 to what John is doing here, identifying the source by what person teaches. So do we want to, to know whether a teacher is really from God? You listen carefully to their Christology. If they are from God, they will be teaching the scriptural truths about Jesus, his full humanity, his full deity, and his inclusion. And in, in it really goes down to teaching about the Trinity, 
the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because you can't have a fully divine Savior without the teaching of the Trinity. So it really goes into all that. But if they are not from, if they are, if they are teaching those things, they are, they are from God. But if they are not, if this teacher is not really a from God, they will go astray in the teachings about Jesus Christ. They will go astray from the apostolic's teachings, the New Testament teachings about Jesus Christ. That is for sure. Now, is that the only test of a false believer? No. John's not like giving us an exhaustive list of false believers. We can get some of those other tests of how they live and other things from uh, other epistles in the New Testament. But the test stands. You want to know whether someone is truly a teacher of God? Look at their Christology. Now, look at verse 4. In verse 4, he does something a little different. Before he moves to the second test, he's saying this, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. What is he doing? I think he's giving us some um, encouragement that we must use the test of discernment with confidence in God. Not confidence in our own ability, but confidence in God. So he, number one, notice that he affirms their status as from God, they are from God. He's linking them to the source. And he's calling them little children, which is a term of endearment. He's not belittling them. He's just saying, he's using that term to endear himself to them, that they are linked to God as his children. And as a spiritual leader, as an apostle, he is giving them information they need to know. So he says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Overcome whom? Overcome these false teachers, these false prophets. So John confirms their status as the children of God, and he gives them reasons for their victory. He tells them that they have been victorious. How have they been victorious? Well, they haven't believed the message of the false prophets. They haven't gone that way. They've stayed true. The false prophets arose within the church, and we, we found out in John 2 that they left and departed the church, and the ones that John wrote to are, are the ones left. And he is writing, and he's writing to encourage them and strengthen them. He's saying, you, you, be, you have the victory. You have overcome. And he gives them the reason. He says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And he who is in you is ultimately God, but more immediately, it, it refers directly to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who resides within us. And John's been teaching us of the Holy Spirit in, in various verses. But it is this reference to the Holy Spirit, this, um, this helper to this anointing who teaches us, and this anointing, if we use the language of, of John 2, this anointing that, that protects us from false teachers, ultimately is from him. He is the one that gives us wisdom to discern the source, using the scriptures, the source of a, of a teacher. That source, he who is... He is he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So he who in the world is ultimately Satan. But more immediately, he refers more likely to the spirit of the Antichrist. So the spirit of the Antichrist wants to tear down and replace the true Christ. The Holy Spirit seeks to exalt and lift up and magnify the true Christ, Jesus Christ. And so he just, he's just it, verse 4 is, is an encouragement not to... Be fearful of all the false teachers, but to be confident in God that he will help you to apply the test and that he ultimately will protect you. In verses 5 and 6, we see the, what I call the 
audiological test. The audiological test. That is the test of listening. The test of listening. Look at what he says there. Going, returning to the idea of the false teachers. They are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. So notice how many times the world is used there. They are from the world. Talks about their source. Their identity. Therefore they speak as from the world. Because they are of the world. They use the world's terminology. They appeal to the world's philosophy. They appeal to the world's trust in science or, or medicine or you fill in the blanks. It, it is uh, the way that they speak appeals to the world. And look at what the response is. Since they are from the world, that is they have the same identity of the world. And, and here the, the, the term in verse 5, the term world isn't referring to our the earthly spatial globe. It's referring to a system of rebellion against God, which comprises every person born in this earth that has not been saved and redeemed. So they are from the world. They are from this rebellious ideology. Therefore, they speak as from the world. And what's the response? And the world does what? Listens to them. Listens to them. So, again, we have a positive and a negative side of this audiological test. The positive side is given in verse 6. We are from God. Now, I believe that when he uses the term we there, he's talking about those who have been sent as teachers. He's not necessarily identifying with his readers. He's saying that he, as an apostle, and those that have been sent by God to be not only apostles or prophets, but also teachers, are from God. He who knows God listens to us. Notice how he's tying it back together with what he said before, before with about knowledge of God. If you really know God, then you're going to listen to those who are sent by God with his message. And he who is not from God does not listen to us. So, so putting all this together, what John is saying, you can determine the spiritual source of a teacher by looking at the audience. Who's listening to this person? Now, this, isn't, this, this doesn't necessarily mean that every large congregation is unfaithful. It's certainly not saying that. There are some very faithful large congregations what he's saying is, look at the character. Not the number, but the character. Obviously, if, if, if it's someone who's appealing to the world, it, is, it, it can be very large, but it doesn't necessarily have to be very large. It's the character. Are the people in the pews, do their lifestyles reflect that of the world or of God? And again, you go back and look at these tests that we've, already, uh, we've had earlier in the letter of 1 John. Uh, not only doctrinal tests, but the test of love, the ta- test of practicing righteousness, of holiness, of being like God. So you apply these to those who are listening. What is their lifestyle like? What, what, are, what are those people, what are they saying? How are they living their lives? Do they exemplify Christ-like living? So in a sense, it's just saying that, that people are going to seek out teachers 
to their own desires. For those who know the Lord, we're going to seek out teachers who feed us the Word of God because we know that we need to be fed and we know we need to hear the Word of God. The world, on the other hand, doesn't want to hear the Word of God. So the world is going to seek out teachers that give it platitudes. Right? And keep in mind, we're not talking about pagan religions. We're talking about formalized Christianity, the visible form Christianity. That's the warning. That's what he's warning us against. So there's this Christological test and the audiological test that ultimately we need to apply to those that we, 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 before we become their students, so to speak. Before you sit down and, and listen to a full sermon of somebody, know what they teach. Right? Look at their doctrine that they sub- subscribe to. And look at some of the things that their congregation, their church is doing and involved with. Right? You can't always know that from a distance. So this is, spoke, this is given in a time when people were related to one another. Much easier to know. Like with the internet, you can listen to people that you, it's really hard to know their congregation. Although you can get something, you can know something about them through the websites. You'll know nothing about them personally. But again, it's just, it's just a, a, um, a reiteration that we really need to be on guard. We need to be discerning. And time and time again, if you have ever listened to Pastor MacArthur, I'm sure you've heard him say this and repeat this many, many times. The church today um, ha- is not faithfully discerning the times. It's just listening to people and buying into things, hook, line, and sinker, and being led astray into error. Right? And it shows, ultimately it shows that many of those um, people are not true believers, but in so doing it destroys a lot of churches where there are true believers, and there's a lot of heartache there. So the call for us, the application for us, is to, to be vigilant and to be discerning. And to realize that discernment is required in the times in which we live. We cannot just, cannot just live just listening to anybody who claims uh, to, to be teaching the Bible. We must be discerning on who we listen to. All right, let's pray. Our Lord, our God, we want to thank you that you have left us um, on this earth with a great helper. The anointing. The anointing the Holy Spirit, which you cause to reside within us, who helps us, who protects us, who guards us, and who helps us to exercise this discernment that we're called to practice. So help us to be discerning followers of Jesus Christ, to be those who believe in Jesus Christ wholeheartedly and without any skepticism, at the same time guarding ourselves as to who we listen to, who we go to for advice, who we take wisdom from or suggestions from. Lord God, guard us against the influences of the world and uh, help us to walk in holiness of the truth and exercising biblical discernment. In your name we pray. Amen.